Lessons 38 and 39 of the History of London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. The History of London by Walter Besant. Lesson 38 Justice and Punishments. In the time of the Plantagenets, the punishments inflicted on wrongdoers were much more lenient than those which followed in later years. There is none of that brutal flogging which grew up in the last century, the worst time in the whole history of the country, for the people. This flogging, not only in the army and navy, but also for such offences as vagrancy, lasted even into the present century. In the year 1804, six women were publicly flogged at Gloucester for this offence. Under Whittington this barbarous cruelty would not have been done. There were, it is true, certain punishments which seem excessively cruel. If a man struck a sheriff or an alderman, he was sentenced to have his right hand chopped off. That is, indeed, worse than hanging. But consider, the whole strength of London lay in its power to act, and its resolution always to act as one man. This could only be effected by habitual obedience to law, and the most profound respect to the executive officers. Therefore the worst penalty possible, that which deprived a man of his power to work and his power to fight, which reduced him to ruin, which made his innocent children beggars, which branded him till death as a malefactor of the most dangerous kind, was inflicted for such an offence. Here again Mercy stepped in, for when the criminal was brought out for execution, if he expressed contrition, the offended officer, represented by the alderman of the ward, begged that he might be pardoned. For burglary criminals were ruthlessly hanged. This crime is bad enough now. It is a crime which ought at all times to be punished with the utmost rigour. But in these days what is it that a burglar can carry away from an ordinary house? A clock or two, a silver ring, a lady's watch and chain, a few trinkets. If any money, then only a purse with two or three pounds. The wealth of the family is invested in various securities. If the burglar takes the papers, they are of no use to him. There is a current account at the bank, but that cannot be touched. Books, engravings, candlesticks, plated spoons, these are of little real value. Formerly, however, every man kept all his money, all his wealth, in his own house. If he was a rich merchant, he had a stone safe or strong-box constructed in the wall of his cellar or basement. I have seen such a safe in an old house pulled down about seven years ago. If he was only a small trader or craftsman, he kept his money in a box. This he hid. There were various hiding-places, behind the bed, under the hearthstone, but they were all known. A burglar, therefore, might, and very often did, take away the whole of a man's property, and reduce him to ruin. For this reason, 
it was very wisely ordered that a burglar should be hanged. They began, in the reign of Henry IV, to burn heretics. Later on they burned witches and poisoners. As yet they had not begun to slice off ears and to slit noses. There was no rack, nobody was tortured, nobody was branded on the hand, there was no whipping of women in Bridewell as a public show. That came later. There was no flogging at the cart-tail. Punishments were mild. Sometimes the criminal performed the amende honorable, marching along cheap, bare-headed, and wearing nothing but a white shirt, carrying a great wax taper, escorted by the mayor's sergeants. There was a ducking-stool on the other side of the river, at Bankside, in which scolds were ducked. There was the thew, which was a chair in which women were made to sit, lifted high above the crowd, exposed to their derision. There was the pillory, which served for almost all the cases which now come before a police magistrate, adulteration, false weights and measures, selling bad meat pretending to be an officer of the mayor, making and selling bad work, forging title-deeds, stealing, all were punished in the same way. The offender was carried or led through the city, sometimes mounted with his head to the horse's tail, always with something about his neck to show the nature of his offence, and placed in pillory for a certain time. There was one punishment always in reserve, the worst of all. This was deprivation of the privileges of a freeman, and banishment from the city. "'Go,' said the mayor, "'thou shalt dwell with us, trade with us, converse with us, no more. Go!' And so that source of trouble was removed. We have seen how the trades formed companies— every trade having its own company. It must not, however, be understood that the working man gained much power by their unions. They were organised, they had to obey. Obedience was very good for them, as it is for all of us, always, but it must be obedience to a corporate body, not to a master. This they did not understand and they tried to form covens, or trades' unions, of their own. The city put down these attempts with a stern hand. The trade companies ruled hours of work, wages and standard of work. Lastly, though there was no city police to guard the streets, there were certain laws for the maintenance of order. Nobody under the rank of knight was to carry arms in the streets. No one was to walk about the street after nine at night. Houses were not to be built over streets. In a word, there were not many laws, but the people were law-abiding. And this, perhaps, as much as anything else, explains the greatness of London. End of Lesson 38 Lesson 39 The Political Power of London until the rapid growth of the manufacturing interests created immense cities in the north, the wealth and prosperity and population of London gave it a consideration and power in the political situation 
which was unequalled by that of any other medieval city. Even Paris, for instance, has never held an equal importance in the history of France. This power has been especially and significantly employed in the election and proclamation of kings. It is not only that London has been the place of proclamation, it is that the Londoners themselves have repeatedly said, This shall be our king, and as repeatedly, by that very act, have given him to understand that if he would not reign well, he should, like some of his predecessors, be deposed. London chose kings Edmund and Harold Harefoot before the conquest. After the conquest, they elected Stephen at a folk moat, a gathering of all the citizens. They put him on the throne, and they kept him there. The power of the Londoners is very well put by Froissart, who wrote in the time of Richard II and Henry IV, and was an eyewitness of many things which he relates. The English, he says, are the worst people in the world, the most obstinate and the most presumptuous, and of all England the Londoners are the leaders, for, to say the truth, they are very powerful in men and in wealth. In the city there are twenty-four thousand men, completely armed from head to foot, and full thirty thousand archers. This is a great force, and they are bold and courageous, and the more blood is spilled, the greater is their courage. End quote. Take the deposition of Edward II, also described by Froissart. He says that when the Londoners found the king, quote, besotted, unquote, with his favourites, they sent word to Queen Isabella that if she could land in England with three hundred armed men, she would find the citizens of London, and the majority of the nobles and commonalty, ready to join her and place her on the throne. This the Queen effected. The citizens joined the little army thus collected, without their assistance, Froissart says, the thing could not have been done, and made Edward prisoner at Berkeley Castle. Or there was the capture of Richard II. This also was effected by an army composed entirely of Londoners, twelve thousand strong, led by Henry of Lancaster. Afterwards, when Henry of Lancaster was Henry the Fourth, and a conspiracy was formed against him, the Lord Mayor said, "'Sire, king we have made you, king we will keep you.'" The city played almost as great a part against Henry the Sixth, half-heartedly at first, because they thought that as he had no children, there would be at some time or other an end. Moreover, they could not readily forget his grandfather, their own king, and his father, the hero of Agincourt. When, however, a son was born, the Londoners became openly and unreservedly Yorkists, and the Yorkists triumphed. The election of Richard III was made in London. When Lady Jane Grey was proclaimed queen, it was not by the mayor and aldermen but by the Duke of Northumberland, and the city looked on in apathy, expecting trouble. 
the greatest strength of Elizabeth lay in the affection and support of London, which never wavered. Had Charles I conciliated the city, he might have died in his bed, still King of England. It was the city which forced James II to fly, and called over William Prince of Orange. It was again London which supported Pitt in his firm and uncompromising resistance to Napoleon, and in the end Napoleon was beaten. It cannot be too often repeated that two causes made the strength of London, the unity of the city, so that its vast population moved as one man, and its wealth. The king thought of the subsidies, under the names of loans, grants, benevolences, which he could extort from the merchants. We, who enjoy the fruits of the long struggle maintained especially by London, for the right of managing our own affairs, especially in the matter of taxation, cannot understand the tyrannies which the people of old had to endure from kings and nobles. Richard II, for instance, forced the citizens to sign and seal blank charts. Try to imagine the Prime Minister making the Lord Mayor, the Aldermen, the Common Councilmen, and all the more important merchants sign blank cheques to be filled in as he pleased. That, however, was the last exaction of Richard II. Henry of Lancaster went out with twelve thousand Londoners, and made him prisoner. Another factor, less generally understood, assisted and developed the power of London. It was also the position of the city as the centre of the country, not geographically, which would give Warwick that position, but from the construction of the roads and from its position on the Thames. But to repeat, the use and wont of the city to act together by order of the mayor principally made it so great a power. Whatever troubles might arise, here was a solid body, twenty-four thousand men-at-arms and thirty thousand archers, all acting on one side. The rest of the country was scattered, uncertain, inclined this way and that. The city, to use a modern phrase, voted solid. There were no differences of opinion in the city, and that, even more than its wealth, made London a far more important factor politically than the barons with all their following. End of Lesson 39 Recording by Ruth Golding